Hey there folks, welcome back to Classic Camera Revival, and today, cue the saxophone solos, because we're going to the danger field zone. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto-Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. So we're 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 not talking Top Gun here. We're not talking eighties eighties movies, but uh, instead we're going a little bit further back. As the great Rodney Dangerfield said, "I ain't get no respect." So today we are going to be talking about cameras and films that just generally don't get a lot of respect within the film photography community as a whole. And we're going to start off with something that we have never talked about on this show before, which is a rarity, because we've been going on for eight seasons now, going into our ninth season next year, and that's Miranda cameras. Okay, thanks, Alex. Yeah, you know, we've, we've, we've done Nikon many times. We've done Canon, Rolleiflex, Leica, Yashica, Voigtlander, um, all the brands that you've likely heard of, we've done on more than one occasion but I was thinking about this when Alex we, we started this, the planning process for this episode and that brand is Miranda like I don't think I'm trying to remember I, the last time I saw someone actually use a Miranda out in the field and it's been a while I don't remember and yeah we've never discussed it on the show it just never seems to come up online and it's it's a shame because Miranda, in some respects, like they they led a rather short, troubled existence. Uh, the way they, you know, they, uh, you know, they went bankrupt in the '70s, but uh, they did some uh, innovative things that I think are worth uh, are worth noting. And I'm going to start off with a camera uh, from about 1956. Originally, it was supposed to be called the Phoenix, but then apparently it turned out that there was another German camera that had that name, and they wanted to avoid uh, getting the lawyers involved. So they launched something called the Orion, which uh, apparently only a 1,000 of them or so were made. Uh, I looked it up on eBay. There's one for sale right now for about three grand, uh, so they're not, they're not cheap. Um, but here are, you know, people think about, oh, what, what, what are the pioneering Japanese SLR. People think Nikon F. But here are here are some surprises. According to what I've read online, uh, and if it's on on, it must be true, um, that the Orion was the first Japanese SLR with a pentaprism, and it was the first Japanese SLR with uh, interchangeable finders. So they uh, they beat Nikon F to the, uh, the punch with that. But again, uh, only a thousand of them made. It's a beautiful looking camera. Um, but uh, yeah, you're not, you're not gonna find one unless you're very lucky and are prepared to spend some money. So once we get into the 1960s, this is sort of, I guess, when they, if, if it could be said that uh, Miranda had a peak or a high point, it was the 1960s. Um, and they introduced a camera in 1961 called the Automax, which uh, was cheaper than an Icon F by a little bit, but had a lot of the same features, like in terms of interchangeable um, 
pentaprism or finder, that kind of thing. But I think where they sort of really hit their high point was a uh, camera called the Sensor X. The Miranda Sensor X, um, it came out in a number of different versions um, and was offered from uh, 1966 to 1972. And it had uh, some interesting features. Again, it had the ability to uh, to remove the uh, and switch out the finder. But um, here's an interesting thing: it had a dual lens mount. So, in addition to mounting um, lenses via the bayonet mount, like the Miranda bayonet mount, there was a second um, slightly recessed lens mount, a 44 millimeter screw mount which was designed specifically to allow you to use these adapters that uh, Miranda made in order to attach third-party lenses. Because they figured their, 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 their business play was, you know, well, we might not be able to get someone who already has a whole bunch of lenses for a competitor's brand to switch and buy new lenses, but if we produce a whole bunch of adap- different kinds of adapters, including some for rangefinders, which is rather interesting, um, and sell these adapters and a camera that can use them. Maybe, maybe we can get some people who will at least buy this uh, this camera as a as a backup. Like, it wasn't really, you know, I don't think they were going after the pro market, um, but they were hoping for uh, for semi pro. So I talked about the uh, the bayonet mount. Uh, another interesting feature is that the uh, the shutter release was not on top. The shutter release was on was on the front, similar to if you've seen some of the uh, Practica cameras that have the front mounted uh, front mounted the shutter. And um, there is something to be said for having um, the uh, the shutter release there. Now, if you're not used to it, it takes a while to learn the motor memory. But reviewers of the time were saying that they thought having the shutter there as opposed to on top led to less camera shake because you weren't pushing down the camera, you're just sort of squeezing it together. And so it was interesting that the uh, reviewers uh, said that. Um, it had a, a CDS meter with center bottom uh, weighting, which I don't think was all that common in the 60s. So, but, of course, having that bottom weighting meant that if uh, the meter is going to be less likely to be fooled by a, uh, a bright sky. Um, reviewers also said that they thought that the, um, the fo- that it was a rather bright focusing screen, that focusing was, uh, was, uh, was pretty easy. And here's the interesting thing. The way that the focusing or the metering mechanism was designed, you could take the finder off and the metering would still work. So you could take that, so if you're, let's say, looking down, let's say you're doing macro or something, so you could treat it as a very small waist-level finder, and the, the metering is still working. Um, it was a, uh, a match-needle camera up until 1971 when they introduced the Sensorex EE, which was shutter priority um, automatic. And what was interesting, what they did was they, sort of like Nikon, they maintained their bayonet mount, the original mount, through the, the entire lifetime of their existence. But they have to, they kept having to put sort of hacking external things on it to support new features without changing the, uh, 
the lens mount. So if you look at if you look at a Miranda lens, you'll see these little knobs and circles coming out of it in order to to allow features to work with the original mount. And in some cases, like you could only you know so the really old lenses on a sensor X would all, EE would only work in stop down metering mode. You know something we're not all that uncommon with. So um, yeah, you know they. They uh, they put together some interesting gear, and you know people talk about Nikon F as a system camera. There were a lot of accessories too. I remember seeing an ad. I've tried to find the ad online, like on Google Images, have not been able to find it. An ad from I think a early, maybe a seventy seventy one copy of Popular Photography, where you see this guy. He's got this sort of dinner platter in front of him, and it's just covered in all the gear. And the uh, and he's looking down at it, smiling. And the caption of the ad is "Eat, it will help you grow." Like I would just love to find to find uh, that ad. No, but sadly, you know, despite their um, their innovation, they uh, they found they they just could not compete. Uh, you know, the fact even though they're thing they were cheaper than Nikon, they. Quality control, as they, especially as they got into the '70s, corners started getting cut, and uh, you know, it be, almost got to a point where it wasn't if your Miranda would break; it was when. Mm-hmm. And so, in the night, so in, uh, eventually in the 1970s, they uh, they went belly up, and that was the end of sadly, you know, a short, but I think rather interesting camera. No, I don't. I used to have one. Uh, but I bought it as a prop because, ironically enough, it didn't really work. I think I still have a couple of pieces left here and there. I've got a, uh, I've got a finder somewhere, and I have a bellows extension. Something I'll probably never ever use unless I hack it. But I probably yeah. should. But um, you know, they're also very attractive cameras. So I'm, am I? They had I, a really unique the, um, the, the, the square. front. It looked very much like a, like a automotive grill. Yeah, sort of, yeah? Like, sort of like you know, if uh, if you had a '59 Chrysler that could take pictures, that yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, is this a camera I'd record? I'd uh, recommend buying, not necessarily. You want to make sure that it works, but does it deserve a higher place in the history of photography? Definitely. So, Miranda, you're not getting the respect you deserved. Hmm. Now. When it came to um, cameras, Nikon is mostly known for their professional cameras. Their first entry into the consumer level market ended in abject failure with the Nicorex line. And I'll probably get some hate for saying that, but I've only used one Nicorex and it was a pain in the neck. Well, it sounds like something you chew to stop smoking. Exactly. But their second entry was the Nickermats. And we have on our team a Nickermat apologist, Bill. I love my Nickermats. And you're wondering, why? My dad shot with one in the 70s. He had the Nikon F, which I inherited. But he also had a Nickermat FTN, which uh, was built between 1967 and 74. I think my dad bought his in the late 60s, probably when I was like in diapers uh and again it's and the knicker mats were made from the mid 60s after the great knicker experiment failed 
and they made them up to 1977 when the FM and the FE came along, uh, which was a response to the Olympus OM-1 and OM-2 series of cameras, respectively. Now, a lot of people who are getting into film photography now are reaching for the Canon AE-1, Pentax K-1000, if you can still find one relatively cheap, which you can't really. Uh you know, certain Minolta XGMs, X700s and stuff, but they tend not to look at the knicker mat. Knicker mats, especially the FTMs, are still very accessible in price. Uh, the FT2, which was built from 75 to 77, which uh, went from 625 batteries to uh, the 357 or the SR44 size, which are readily available, they're a little bit more expensive, but... If you're getting into film photography and you want to get into the Nikon lens system relatively cheap, yeah, the Nikomat is the way to go. Now, the main complaint with the Nikomat series is they are, let's just say, very solidly built, which is code for, yeah, they feel heavy. Uh, but again, it's like one of those, if you run out of film, you can use it as a defensive weapon. Now, the other thing is the ergonomics, uh, at least for the me mechanical knicker mats, uh, they're, um, in some ways, the, the form factor is a lot like the Olympus OM-1. The shutter speeds are on the lens mount, which might throw some people off or not. But in the end, in some regards, if you're in cold weather, it's got a lever for the shutter speed. So if you're wearing gloves... Uh, it's an easier camera to use. It also has the uh, copal shutter. And that just does not fail in cold weather unless it's a particularly damp cold. And that's when it, you know, it might start to struggle a wee bit. Uh, compared to something with a horizontal shutter, which will just say, nope, I'm not working now. Have a nice day. Wait till we warm up again. The Nikomats, again, they're solid cameras. They have, uh, most of the meters are still working, although some of them do tend to go because they get oxidized. Uh, Johnny Martyr did, uh, uh, had a blog post on his blog on how to fix that. And it's not that hard. Uh, it does require some uh, a steady hand and some deoxid uh, fluid, and you're good to go. Now, again, if you're getting one of the older knicker mats and the bat, uh, the meter still works, you will need an adapter uh, to uh, for the voltage because, of course, they used 1.35 and current batteries are one and a half. And, of course, the knicker mat FT2 comes with a silver oxide battery, so you don't have to worry about that. Now, again, the big thing, it's budget. I, uh, I'm shooting with the knicker mat FTN this weekend. I think I paid... I don't want to say landed about 60 bucks Canadian. And that's just a body only. And a Nikomat H lens, you can buy locally from a local camera dealer. Another 60 bucks and you pretty much good to go. <laughs> and the best part is if you already have a collection of AI and AIS lenses, those will work on your, on your Nikomats also because they still have the claw. Exactly. Or I call them the rabbit ears or the metering prong. The yeah. claw. <laughs> Sorry for the Toy Story res uh, reference. No worries. So, yeah, it's like 
if you're again a, a, a photographer who's getting into film like again take a good look at the knicker mat they are sexy cameras they're built to the same quality standard as the f and um and they don't they generally are, are super duper reliable very good point you know we have all of these you know electronic cameras from the 80s and 90s that are dying uh even if the meter dies on a on on a knicker mat the rest of it's mechanical that's right it will still work you can just you can even stick a meter onto the hot shoe and it'll just keep going or just sunny 16 it and going from solid mechanical nikons to plastic mechanical nikons the fm10 now the fm10 is unique in the sense that it's a nikon not made by nikon it's instead made by cosina now cosina has made a lot of cameras that have classic names on it the voigtlander bessa rangefinders are cosina made so the fm10 will look familiar because there are a lot of cameras that look like the fm10 because it's actually based on the cosina ct1 super and that camera first hit the market in 1990 you can buy it as a cosina branded ct1 super or you can buy it as the canon t60 or the olympus om 2000 cosina just swapped out the lens mount but what separates the fm10 from the other ones is that they made the body seem a bit more smoother it sort of matched the aesthetic of the 1990s nikon so you put it next to something like um, an f65 and the two will look very very similar to each other um, Nikon also insisted on adding a meter activation button, multi-exposure, and depth of field preview. And that's the one, th- those are the things that set apart from the stock model and from, say, the T60 and the OM2000. The problem is these cameras are almost entirely plastic, and the one that I have actually has several things wrong with it. I pulled it out of an e-waste bin at work, and the the depth of field preview lever is broken so it doesn't actually work anymore which is fine i hardly use that anyways um and it takes a bit to actually get the film just right the tensioner isn't isn't completely there so i have to sort of wind it on close the back and then release it or that will just pop up and won't actually load it's annoying, but when you pull a camera out of the trash, because a lot of people see the FM10 as trash, and it is. it is. It is a cheaply made camera, but it's also from the era where you started to see digital start to take a bit more lead. Um, you had APS hitting the market also, and a lot of schools were still teaching film photography and darkroom, and they needed a cheap and cheerful mechanical camera to teach students and what better way to do that than um the fm10 i mean um the fm the fm2 the fm2n are well-loved cameras 
within the market. And the FM 10 takes a lot of influence from those in what it is. And the problem is, is that these days they aren't cheap on the used market anymore. Thanks again to Celebrity. Which, again, I don't really understand why people would pay $300 for an FM10. Just go raid a trash bin of a high school or a college that has a dark room. Get, and, a, get a knicker mat. Yeah. Get or, a knicker or just mat buy a knicker mat. Buy a knicker mat and you can buy a couple of lenses. Like $300. You could probably get the knicker mat, the 50F2, maybe the 105 2.5 uh, Tele, lucky, yeah. and that, which is a great lens. Yeah. And again, the nice thing about the FM10 is that it does have the Nikon F mount, so you can mount any AI, AIS, um, Type D autofocus lenses, the original autofocus, and the Series E. So you have a lot of options. And another problem is that the stock FM10 came with one of the worst zoom lenses ever produced by Nikon in their Series E line, so you can throw that one out. But Again, if you're looking for something simple and can get it for an affordable price, the FM10 works. If you want a little bit of automation, there's the FE10, um, same basic model that has that aperture priority on it. Now, in addition to cameras, um, a lot of films don't get a lot of respect in the uh, film photography community. And I know we've harped on a few films in the past and have come back and go, wow, this film is actually kind of good. So we are going to kick it off with... Foma Pan 100. Yeah. Um, thanks, Alex. And um, I, I really like Foma Pan 100 in, uh, in medium format. Like back about uh, oh, 10, 12 years ago, I was shooting a lot of you know models, doing the whole model mayhem thing, and shooting mainly uh, Mamiya 645. And I was shooting a lot of, um, I had a lot of studio shooting, um, and I used the Foma Pan 100 and I just absolutely love the results. You know, uh, classic, classic grain, um, develop, like I think I, I did most of the developing in, in Xtol back then. Um, and, you know, not a whole lot to say, although I remember the first time I developed in the, uh, it, it's a good film to develop at Christmas because the, um, the backing, well, no, the annihilation layer, it comes out. It's such a beautiful, cheerful color of green. Mm. Although if you're not expecting it the first time, you say, "What the hell's going on?" Um, and you know, it's it's a lovely film. It's it's reliable. Um, the only thing it's not good for is pinhole because it had it has nasty nasty reciprocity failure. Mm. I did I did a shot once four by five. Uh, FP100 a pinhole and on a day where the light was maybe a little bit darker than today so you know typical February Toronto day gray um, as an old man's soul um, and and just as dim and the once I once I factored in the reciprocity the exposure was six and a half minutes Oof. now the, the picture turned out actually quite like it maybe I'll even use that as an example for there the uh, yeah. for the show notes but yeah it's not it is no across, you know. Of course, the pinhole shooters love across because there's no reciprocity failure. Um, but apart from that, I can't think of a single downside for that stock in terms of like a low, like a medium speed film, and the fact that we all know that film is not cheap these days. It seems every day you get up, there's a new price increase. This film is 
very, very affordable, relatively speaking. Like it's half the price of some of the other, you know, big brand go-tos that tends to come in yellow boxes. And you can get it for even cheaper if you buy, say, um, Freestyle's Arista brand. Um, the Arista Ultra EDU Ultra 100 is rebadged Fomapan 100. If you want fancy box art, you can get it as Cosmo Photo Mono 100. If you're into horror, you can get it in the FPP Monster line of film. Wolfman 100, for example, is Fomapan 100. And it is cheap way to practice with large format. Mm-hmm. Fomapan 100 just sings in D76 from personal experience, both mm-hmm. in 35 and 120. D76, um, D96, it works really well in also. Um, I wouldn't necessarily do it in Rodinal, but it's not bad. But yeah, there's tons of options oh, out yeah. there for it. I want to try an FX39. Yeah, that would like, work really and, well. And I believe I've tried it. If I tried it yet in black, white, and green, I'll have to give that a go. It's good in that too. But it's, uh, it's yeah, perhaps again, like not, not Rodinal, uh, but apart from that, you know, any standard developer will probably do just fine. It it's a film that that it doesn't make a whole lot of demands on you mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. And then bumping up a speed, we get to two hundred speed black and white films. Now, I'm not sure what to do with these. These films, I think they try too hard, and you get stuff like Fomapan two hundred, and you know what? It's it's a decent film. It's not my favorite. Um, it's one you have to give it a little bit of overexposure to, a little bit of pull in development, um, use specialty developers, compensating developers. You can really do it. But I say it tries too hard, and I talk, of course, that it's not quite a 400-speed film. It's not quite a 100-speed film. It tries to be that little bit extra. It tries to be that snowflake film. And... I'm talking about two film stocks specifically, and that's Ilford SFX 200 and Rolleye Superpan 200. These films are grainier than 400 speed films are normally. And I don't know why, because you'd think like, okay, yeah, 400 speed film, I expect grain. That's why I want to shoot them. That's why I shoot Fomapan 400. That's why I shoot Tri-X. That's why I shoot HP5. But those look good if you take them down to 200. There are 100 speed films. You bring it up to 200 and they look fabulous. Why 200 speed films? So yeah, they definitely don't get a lot of respect, but you can do a lot with them. I mean, SFX 200 gives you that near infrared. Um, Roll-Eye Superpan 200 is another one. Like it, But it's it's almost like they're asking to just be like, yeah, just stand develop me in Rodinal 1 to 100 or 1 to 200 for two hours, and then I'll look good. Or um, Fomapan 200, for example, looks fabulous at 125 in Spur HRX, which is a difficult developer to get your hands on. It looks good in HR dev from Adox. Again, difficult developer to get your hands on and not cheap. So really, why why 200 speed films are still around? I don't get it. But you know what? If you if you want that extra special, you want to be different. You want to be extra. Yeah, 200 speed films will 
deliver what you're looking for, but you really have to work for it. I'd echo what you're saying about the SFX 200, um, but it's near infrared capabilities. It's it's like a Rolly at uh, Retro ADS and 400S. Mm-hmm. Um, you get really interesting results that way, and in the right circumstances, you can get some very interesting portraiture. Oh yeah, but you again, you have to put that filter in front of it. You want that red filter, yeah, um, and then you're again you're losing those stops especially with that red 25 filter you're losing stops so it's again it's like really <laughs> I, I was doing it with uh with studio strobe and the red filter Ooh, and that was neat nice that is really and cool. a tripod which yeah. helps yeah absolutely and finally we're taking one more step up the film speed but things are going to get a lot more colorful fuji superior 400 as we all know, there is, how should I say, in the now times, uh, getting color negative films can be a tad problematic. Kodak, Alaris, it's sort of like everyone's waiting for more Portra. They're out of stock months on end. Or worse yet, when you get into the consumer stuff, like Ultramax 400, again, you're, you're waiting, waiting, waiting some more. Gone on vacation, still waiting. It might show up or not. And this is the retailers telling me this. <laughs> yeah. Their frustration. Um, and Fuji's no better, but in the end, it's sort of like in some instances, I have found Superior 400 to be a tad more available than Kodak films. And if you shop smart, they're not that bad in price. Like I've been getting three packs of 36 exposure Superior 400 for about. Thirty dollars Canadian on average. That's really if you can not find bad. It, you've got to shop carefully and shop quickly, and shop around. And shop around. Now, as a film, Superior Four Hundred tends to lean towards cool. So, if you've got lenses, or you're running with a camera system or a lens system that tends to, you know, the le- the lenses render a little on the more on the warm side. Superior 400 might be a fun film to shoot with. Uh, I generally expose it around, I don't go box speed. I expose around 250 ISO. That's my usual jam, regardless what 400 speed color film I'm using. Because you want that little bit, I say, take it up to 11, using the tired metaphor uh, from Spinal Tap. Uh, and I get amazing results. Uh, I've shot it through my F5. I've shot it through my Canon new F1. I've shot it through all sorts of systems with great results. Uh, and again, it, it's pretty fine grain. And the skin tones render quite neutral. And um, it's one of those... And again, people tend to like fixate on a particular film stock and know it back... I always say get to know a three or four film stocks back to front because in this day and age, um, you know, you may have to switch on the fly and just pick up the ball and run with it. And, and Superior 400 is one of those. And, you know, who knows if, if Alaris gets their production back up to pre-pandemic levels. I know they're uh, hiring more people. I hope that translates into more production down the road. But anyway. Absolutely, and they are they are hiring. Now, if Fuji, uh, 
if they are still making Superior 400, because we really don't know what's going on at Fujifilm these days. They tend to... Big black box. Yeah, they keep to themselves. I, it, hear, I hear they use the same communication department as Twitter. Ooh, <laughs> harsh. But what would be really nice, since uh, Pro 400H has been gone for, I guess, a tick over a year and a half mm-hmm. now, it would be really nice to have Superior 400 and 120. Ooh, sort of like how Kodak brought Gold 200. That would be cool. That would be really cool. Superior 400 and 120. That would make a lot of photographers really happy. Really, really happy. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, that's the the one thing that I think um, a lot of people don't do these days is um, get to know multiple film stocks. Because, again, the switch to digital, you can make digital do anything you want it to with enough work. Um, so it gives people the freedom to fixate on a single film stock. But when that when that runs dry, when that ceases production, when that changes, all of a sudden they're like, ah, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do, I do? So, again, making making sure that you know a variety of film stocks, you know a variety of developers makes you a better photographer overall because you are no longer worried if oh no i can't get um i can't get triax i can't afford triax anymore um or it's just not available where i am whereas i'm like i went through years where i didn't touch ilford hp5 and 35 millimeter and i went no i have to learn how to like hp5 I bought five rolls, developed it five different ways, and went, aha, I like it this way, this way, and this way. And now I shoot HP5 more than I shoot Tri-X. Um, I've learned to love those 200-speed films. I've learned to love Delta 400 because you experiment. And, yeah, it might cost a little bit more, but sometimes going after something that's not respected by the wider community will save you a bit of money. I'm not sure respect, maybe following the herd. Following the herd, yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, everyone, you know, everyone's on the Cinestill 400D bandwagon right now, and that's a fantastic film. I love Cinestill 400D. So, again, people who are missing their Portro or their Pro 400H, 400D is an excellent way, and there are multiple ways to get it, but Cinestill's the only way you can really get it in 120. So... So definitely, that pretty much wraps it up uh, for this episode. Um, Sometimes shooting something that isn't widely respected can be such fun. Why go with the herd? Strike out on a different path. And this is John Meadows regarding uh, Fomapan 100. Something can be cheap and easy, but should still be respected.